Hello and welcome to the Mechanics Institute Review Podcast. I'm Amy St. Johnston and I was an editor for this year's anthology. Today we are joined by Lou Kramskoy who wrote The Frontline to talk about her story and the writing and editing process. Lou Kramskoy is a London-based animation screenwriter. A recent graduate of the Creative Writing MA at Birkbeck, she's working towards completing her first novel alongside a collection of short stories. Her story, Glassblower's Lung, won the 2018 Aesthetica Creative Writing Award. In 2017, Lou also had stories longlisted for the Mislexia Short Story Prize and Bristol Short Story Prizes. And in 2018, she was longlisted for the London Short Story Prize. Welcome, Lou. Hi, Amy. Hi. So nice for you to be here. Lovely. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And now Lou is going to read an extract from her story, The Frontline. Every time I get that hot, stressy feeling, the one that starts in the nodes of my neck with a pea-sized pop, a pea-sized pop that oozes out bad jelly... Every time I get that feeling, I reach into my pocket and pull Tiny Fighter out. And out she comes like a tornado of tiny violence ready to kick ass for me. Not just one kind of ass, but all sorts. Any ass that makes me feel if I peeled back my skull skin and dug deep with clean fingers, bent to a mirror and looked inside... I'd see boats sailing, bobbing around my bad jelly brain. Giant boats with cargo stuffed full of thoughts. Old, dirty thoughts. Exotic new ones. And in the darkest corners of those boats' heaving holds, crates creak and groan. Crates stack so high they lean and bow and threaten to topple, with their hidden contents squealing at each other like smuggled monkeys. Eyes wide and terrified as pain passengers sit up top staring out of small windows sipping on expensive bottled water well every time i get that feeling out she comes and wow tiny fighter is a fearless freakish fighter who kicks ass black and blue and every other bruised color there is she kicks ass till i feel better till i can fold back that tender transparency of skin. Tiny fighter lies in wait, ready to help, with her back you up bitch attitude. She lives in hidden pockets on the left of my life, because my right is always busy swiping, typing, or holding hot coffee. I don't exactly know the milly moment tiny fighter will pounce, but when she does, wow, when she does, you better take mother loving cover. Tiny fighter, out she'll come in meetings when we talk about privacy, supply chains, data collection and storage, spectrum, cyber security, critical infrastructure and a number of economic concerns. In these meetings, as these colleagues, these strangers say awful things to me like redo or redraft, terrible affixes affixed to me too. I feel incapable, unknowable, unlovable. In these meetings, when I can't open my mouth for fear of my broad brain pouring out jellied thoughts into the dead space their multi-connectivity questions have carved into the room, when I feel commands popping like dry gunpowder in the professional air around me, well, 
that's the perfect time and out she comes. Out she comes in the middle of meetings, landing in the centre of that Oval Eames Eiffel leg table with legs spread wide, ready to kick ass. The ass of Beth development. Rachel, logistics. And Simon Simon, production, called Simon Simon because he speaks twice as long, twice as loud and twice as hard. But Tiny Fighter puts him last. Last, you hear. Huh. First Beth. Beth, who sucks the lead on her pencils, making them soggy, so her smile always shows that dot of grey lead on the tip of her tongue. Tiny Fighter will go for that tip on her slimy tongue and bite the leaded spot, make a tiny hole and suck out her pink, fat tongue tissue till it lies flat and flapping in her mouth. So when she speaks, she'll sound like a fart cushion. Tiny Fighter will dive down the top of Beth's silk work shirt into that flabby cleavage she's always got on show. And I can't see what Tiny Fighter does down there in that showy place around her boobs. But it involves nipples and scratching. Yes, serious scratching. I imagine Beth won't notice till the next morning. She isn't the type to wash at night because she's always going out, straight out from work, meeting friends, family smiling smugly the next day like someone whose parents always bought them puppies. I imagine her in the mornings, after Tiny Fighter's done that fight, in that morning shower, lathering those fat, freckled boobs. I imagine her saying, ouch, and ooh, as she feels the sting of water, and I see her twist and turn in that mirror, pulling folds of back fat back, that shapeless flesh that overflows her bra strap, and she'll wonder where those stretches came from. Ha, where indeed? She'll never think of me. But Tiny Fighter won't stop with Beth, no way. Once Tiny Fighter has got the taste, you can't stop her. She'll turn on Rachel, who always saves Beth a seat, as if meetings were a school trip, and they're still sharing packed lunch. Tiny Fighter will swing up those stupid gold-hooped earrings Rachel wears that are really just for the young. And she's five years older than me. Five years, I say. That's a whole school shuffle. Standing on those gold hoops, Tiny Fighter will jump up into her ear and punch a pathway through Rachel's head. And I'll laugh when Rachel tucks her perfect blonde hair behind her clever, clever ear the ear that heard tutors talk at Cambridge, that Stephen from programming sticks his tongue in as he pumps, I imagine. And looking through that tunnel, tiny fighter has fought between her ears, that tunnel right through, I'll laugh when I see tiny fighter waving at me from the other side. Stupid Rachel, she doesn't know what damage has been done. Damage that will last, so every time I look at Rachel, I'll laugh. Then, having dispatched Beth and Rachel, Tiny Fighter will turn on Simon Simon. But Simon Simon is trickier because he looks like all those men in films and on TV, men with power, who you have to find a clever way to hurt. But his eyes, his eyes don't say power. They say something else. His white eyes say monkey and box. And sometimes they say, help me too. 
But tiny Fido is incredible. She'll undo his zip and lower herself down into Simon Simon's loose boxer shorts. I'm not an expert on undergarments or men his age, but once, when he bent down to look for fresh milk in the fridge as he sniffed the stale carton, I saw his pant line rise above his trousers. They had a red tape measure embroidered around the waist. A tape measure? Novelty pants? Present pants? The looseness of those pants means Tiny Fighter can climb in by the nine-inch benchmark and roundhouse kick his floppy fat balls, then pluck his pubes till tiny streams of sperm shoot from small holes and Tiny Fighter will climb out, flick that sperm so it slits across the faces of Beth and Rachel, landing like little scars all over their dry lips. I'll watch as Beth and Rachel pick at their lips, put on balm, and wonder where that flaky dryness came from. And poor Simon Simon, he'll never know why he can't perform properly late at night, and he'll think that dryness is his wife's fault, her fault indeed. And having dispensed with all these losers, Tiny Fidel will stand in the middle of that stylish, wipe-down white table sweating, her black hair wild, her eyes glowing, wiping the red blood off her hands across her naked chest. She's naked, of course. I tried putting doll's clothes on her once, but it looks stupid. And as she pulls Simon Simon's plucked pubes webbed around her away, she'll smile at me. Thank you for that lovely reading, Lou. That's okay. Um, um, I love this story when I first read it, and what I think appealed to me most is that it's really funny, extremely well observed, but also it tackles anxiety in a really different and intriguing way. Um, and I was wondering, why did you choose to approach the topic from this angle? Um, well, I'm really interested um, in sort of writing mind, which, um, you know, finding a way to write about not just characters but their minds and um, I didn't want to write uh, another sort of depressing story of someone who's just not coping with anxiety I wanted to write what it feels like like the moment of anxiety when you're in it and you have no perspective um, and just before I wrote this story I'd written another story um, which was set maybe 30 years ago and it was about a group of young girls and it's called Risky Plain it's I was exploring the idea of um, teenagers now who seem to be and are much more anxious um, and the erosion of freedom in sort of childhood and playing and how, you know, I'm a parent myself and I'm aware we keep them indoors more. Um, and there's lots of research about risky play and how beneficial it is for, you know, young developing children um, to confront mistakes, to be in danger, to process anxiety, to come out the other side. Um, and it's not obviously I'm not suggesting that all anxiety is based on that, but but just as a story framework, um, I was thinking along those lines, so sort of the playful element and the idea of um, um, I, I suppose childhood like themes were coming through. Um, so when I wrote this story, the first line just came to me, um, ish, which was, every time I get that feeling, I reach into my pocket and pull Tiny Fighter out. 
and I didn't quite know what else to do with it. And then, um, but it had a bounce to it, and it tiny finer. It sounds kind of like rocky. It didn't sound like it was going to be like a a deep story, but it was going to be something that had deep themes. But tiny finer was like defining herself from the moment she came out. Um, and then I have a background in animation writing, and I thought about applying sort of adventure sort of tropes to it which is she's fighting um you know you i wanted you to will for the tiny fighter but also a strange connect between you know that the i in the story is imagined the tiny fighter um and so so you're not feeling I, i hoped that you're not feeling sorry for the character but it just feels like a total adventure that you can connect with and and it's also trying to capture that moment I think this must have happened the day I wrote that story where someone maybe I've been in a situation where someone had said something nothing massive and I've been thinking I wish I could go back and sort of say it differently and be in control and like answer back and be and it must have that must have all just fed in sort of in that moment and I just thought it'd be great if you could have someone just kind of kick ass for you, um, especially if you're not very confrontational. What really struck me is, um, as I said earlier, how well observed it is. And there are some really funny lines in there when um, the character's describing the people that she works with. And she describes one of the women as someone whose parents always bought them puppies, which I found so funny. <laughs> um, and also I had a total vision of that woman when I read that line. Um, and I wondered, because obviously the character's suffering with anxiety and she has her tiny fighter to help her, is she able to be more snarky because she feels confident when the tiny fighter's around? Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think the, the, the parents buying puppies thing definitely was... Um, it's, it's an, I mean, it's drawing back to that sort of trying to give her a timeline so you don't just feel this is like, yeah... 25 year old woman in an office but that it's almost like she's resorting back to all of those um childlike things your parents didn't do for you and that that you know that that girl or boy you didn't like who parents got everything they wanted and obviously that's a perception because i don't think any parents would ever like stick their hands up and say yeah everything my child wanted i got but when you're young you can really feel like that you can you know um really feel as though um someone everyone has got more than you depending on how you're feeling and I wanted to thread that through in the story to give um a a childlike quality so I I didn't want it to be full-on aggressive um um, and I I think with with the sort of anxiety element and tiny fighter um in a way I'm trying the character the eye in the story is she's flighting in that she's in the meeting, but she's not really in the meeting. She's thinking about all these horrific things that this sort of personification of the fight side of um, anxiety, like fight and flight. Um, And I guess it's relieving her of tension, um, but she's not really tackling the issue, which is how... Which I guess she isn't really resolved for her, but it's how these meetings are making her feel and what is underlying that. So instead of stepping out and thinking about that, she's having all the satisfaction of the tiny fighter just kicking ass. Um, and it's kind of making, not, not feel superior, but it's helping her manage um, and process her angry feelings. But it's a total distraction. 
And I hope the reader kind of sees that, you know, it was sort of pushing that element. And then at the end of the story, in fact, she has her flea part when she runs to the loo and goes to speak to her mum and obviously going to speak to her mum for all the support that she wants and then her mother's unable to give it to her because no one's able to give it to her. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, And and I think there's that, that generational thing, which I think isn't just to do with youngsters now, but is in every generation where one generation really genuinely don't understand the pressures of the other generation and they look down on them. Um, because, I mean, it kind of connects with the title of the story, because the, the front line always changes, but I'm quite aware, I think any of us that have a phone or the internet and see any young adults heads down in the phones and the internet, that there is a different world, there is a different front line. It's not a physical space anymore. It's not like um, actually existing um, and it's on the internet, it's online, it's actually, it's not somewhere outside of the home anymore. It can be, um, you know, when they're looking at images on the, on the phone. But I wanted the mother to be unsympathetic because I actually feel that young people get quite a hard time about their heads down in their phones. And I, I kind of annoys me a bit because, you know, having young adults in my house, they're looking at really cool stuff some of the time, you know, they're looking at... I don't know, astrophysics, you know, you don't know what they're looking at on their phone, but there's a presumption they're looking at twaddle. And actually in our house, it's probably us, the adults, looking at rubbish, and the kids are doing really interesting stuff. So I wanted her to, when she really reaches out to her mother um, and doesn't know what's wrong with her, and that the mother kind of rejects her, really, because the mother doesn't understand, well, what have, what have you got to be worried about? You know, you kind of won all the battles of feminism, we've sorted out everything, um, and then have that disconnect. Yeah. Is it really that bad that you can't sit next to this woman in a meeting? Yeah, it's a, yeah. But, um... And there's a shame with anxiety, there's a real shame that if you're experiencing anxiety for whatever reason, it doesn't mean you're going to be useless at everything, you know. It's, it's very common, I think, to cope with massive life-changing things that happen to you but get anxious about rubbish you know literally but but that doesn't mean that that thing you're getting anxious about well it doesn't mean the anxiety is not yeah 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 it's because it's a biological uh, it's happening inside your body it's a biological process um and i think there's so much shame around um it's, it kind of connects, it all connects in with that idea of sort of mental health as choice. And if you just have a step up a lift and kind of, you can make a better decision, you, you can be fine. Um, you can pull yourself together. Yeah, I hate yeah. that. I hate yeah, that. it's not helpful. Because if you could, you would. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why would anyone choose to be unhappy? Yeah, you know? exactly. There was always like so many layers to it. But I didn't want to go into reasons in this story. Um, and that was quite hard, keeping it tight. Because when the first draft was was quite small, it's quite a short story, and the temptation is, I think, a lot of writers will have this when you over it, you expand and you expand the story, and then the kind of the bottom fall, the middle falls out and gets all floppy. So, but I think that's one of the reasons why it works so well because it's placed in a scenario that lots of people can relate to. So you don't need a reason. Everybody knows that feeling of being in a meeting and feeling frustrated, and you know, so you're there already. You don't need the that's why it works so well as a subject for a short story because that's good to your, hear. your readers are there already yeah. and they don't need the sort of world building that's necessary in some cases. But it, 
yeah, that, that, I mean, I'm so pleased to hear that because one, one of, I, I was aware there isn't a lot of concrete reality in this story and that was quite, not, not intentional, but it was an exploration because it's happening in her head, it's not real. Um, it was a balance of keeping just enough because um, in sort of my writing workshop group with friends, um, you know, it's sometimes, you know, when you're reading other people's stories or they're, you, you're presenting your stories, you, you, you can lose a reader if you don't put enough in because people feel completely disorientated. So there were lots of things that as I was writing this story, you know, the moment I expanded out, like everything fell apart. And yeah, I wanted to keep it quite universal. I think it worked. Thank you. Thank you so much. So it would probably be good to talk about the editing process. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that I really appreciated as the editor of this story was there was very little to change, <laughs> which was really nice. Um, uh, but one of the things we discussed probably more than anything was the title. Yeah. Um, so I wondered if you would like to talk about that for a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the the original title was, was The Front Line, and it is The Front Line now. But um, the Tiny Fight is such a strong character that when... So some of when friends said when I told them I amazingly got, got into you know your book um, and I was absolutely thrilled and they'd said what story is it and I'd say the front line and they'd say remind me and I'd say tiny fighter and they knew exactly what story it was so it kind of felt like it should be tiny fighter which is something that yeah. I suggested um, but sorry carry on yeah 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 and um I, and then so. We did change it, and I completely agreed. And then I had that sort of like writer's crisis where you just spend a couple of days thinking about it, and I had to really figure out why I wanted it. It should stay the front line, and I think I was for me what I kind of boiled it down to was tiny fighter was like a noun. It was naming the character in the story, but it wasn't bringing anything new to the story. And although it allowed other people to understand what story I was talking about because the character's quite quite clear in there it, it didn't add and I thought the front line sort of did something different because it's sort of talking to the world outside of the story because I think the story is about front lines it is about um, the, the front line between my mind and my body the meeting and me coping my, the, the mother character and the daughter um, it's about the front line between the sort of the shame of things and the nature, the, the front line changing. And um, I really like stories that have um, titles that I can't understand, <laughs> literally, or um, that that like there's a great Tessa Hadley story which has just the best title in the world called An Abduction, I think it's called. So you it does magic to that story. I don't know if you've read it. So you read, read the story and you think that, uh, I think she's 15, this young girl, you think she's going to get abducted, you think something really, really bad is going to happen to her. Um, and it doesn't, but it creates this marvellous tension in the whole story. I mean, I just think that's the best title. That's such an amazing short story. Um, and although this title obviously isn't anything like that, um, it was sort of, yeah, it was a really hard call because I still describe it as the tiny fighter story 
but it felt like I needed to, I would have lost something if I hadn't have had that. Um, so when you got in contact with me about that, one of the things we worked yeah. on in the story was changing just a few words yeah. towards the end when um, the character's talking to her mother. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if you'd like to read the lines before and after. Yeah, so um, I've, I've brought several drafts with me today. Um, and in the original version, um, it says, Frustrated by my inability, she'll snap and ask where exactly I think the front line is. Um, and obviously that's the mother, the sheen, that is the mother. And it was just kind of slotted in. I think you was, you know, it, it didn't make sense. Well, it wasn't highlighted enough, was it, for you? I mean, yeah, it was just a, it seemed to get a bit lost amongst everything else. And then, so what, when we worked together, um, and this is the, just the joy of having your story copy edited, it's someone really close reading it, um, which is just such a privilege. It's so nice to have that. Um, so we changed it, and it's very simple, but it's really effective. So now it says, she'll snap, tell me to pull myself together. So that line, pull myself together, was, was new. Um, and ask where exactly I think the front line is. And then what we did there, um, you know, is we ended the paragraph there. And we had the next paragraph is just where, question mark, which stands by itself. But it, you know, obviously when you're reading a short story with a one-word paragraph, you think about it. Um, and it's a question, where? And, yeah, well, I hope that was just enough without it being too heavy-handed. Yes, I think that in the first instance, the mother, it could have been either way, the mum is being not really listening to her or not really engaging or saying something dismissive, whereas in the new version, she's being much more overtly Mm, dismissive, mm, mm. which um, sort of fits in with the mother's character a bit better. I think it completely makes you, the reader, hopefully aware that... The mother, like you say, she isn't just distracted having her morning cup of coffee and can't be bothered, but she genuinely wants her daughter to pull herself together. Yes. So one of the things that it's really important to remember about in the editing process is that it's meant to be collaborative. Um, So something that I remember I flagged in this story was a particular line towards the beginning, which says, um, out she comes in the middle of meetings, landing in the centre of that oval Eames Eiffel-legged table with legs spread wide, ready to kick ass. And um, I mentioned at the time that it might be better to put in a her um, with her legs spread wide, ready to kick ass, just to make it clear that it's the tiny fighter that we're talking about. But when we spoke about that, you um, explained to me your yeah, uh, yeah. meaning behind it. Yeah, so. I mean... It was so lovely um, working with you um, because there are there are quite a few strange, not not grammatically incorrect, but strange sentences because it's a strange kind of mindscape. And that one I wanted to keep, um, and we spoke about this um, because I I wanted the intentional confusion or awkwardness of are the tables legs spread wide or her tiny fighter's legs spread wide. Um, and my, my, my kind of intention was, I liked the kind of segue in of her, the way her mind was working. But also, um, it's kind of a cue, because I'm, I'm expecting the reader to go back at that sentence and, and to slow down, to slow down the reading. Um, it's kind of like a, trying to be a steer without being irritating. 
I hope you'll, you know. It wasn't irritating. Yeah. <laughs> but, you, you know, these things can be, if they're too self-conscious and they're too, they can be irritating, uh, you know. But, um, but yeah, and you, throughout the whole, because the story does have quite a lot of strange moments like that. Um, and I, I guess when, I, I knew this was an odd sort of quirky story and you, I guess you always worry, you hope people are going to get it and get the rhythm and... And what's so interesting about those things is that, so particularly with the awkward um, sentences that you were talking about, is that when you read them, as in when I read them, they make you pull up, but not necessarily in a bad way, because like you say, they make you focus. But when you are reading them out, you don't notice it at all because it all fits in with the voice. So um, how have you found the reading aloud process? How has that been? Oh, it's been amazing. I am... um, probably like a lot of your listeners um terrified of reading aloud um I love writing (laughs) um but um and I'd read aloud once before but it was a very different story um it was quite elegant and um I thought I was going to faint into the microphone when I did it I was so (laughs) so terrified um but it's good it's good you know you get helps you write better I think read having to read aloud um you're really forced to confront your own story in an audience right there with the readers. Um, and the great thing about the MRI um, anthology is not only do you get to meet all the other writers, which is wonderful because it's, um, you know, you're at home writing in your pyjamas a lot of the time. So to go out and actually meet other people doing exactly that is really lovely. And then you had this whole day where we had act, um, professional actors um, come in and just help us with but for me, they were fantastic techniques. Maybe other people know about them, but, um, you know, r- rising and lowering the pitch of your voice, speeding up, slowing down, and also just staffed exercises. So when, you know, the, the book goes on tour and we're all given the opportunity to read if we want to, um, when you do walk into a pub or a bookshop, there's always three or four writers that you've been on this reading workshop, reading aloud workshop, smiling at you and because you've all embarrassed yourselves with sort of drama making like animal noises it it does it makes it relaxes you um and i mean even in writing it's really helped you know it's helped me think about writing in like a more of a three-dimensional way you know like do you find you read aloud when you're writing anyway to check how things are going or yeah i always read aloud i have a robot voice on my computer (laughs) that kind of speaks like that um, and yeah I always play it back to sort of hear and I kind of think if it sounds alright with a robot reading it <laughs> it might sound better with a human um, but I'm never going to be uh, an incredible actor performer but it, the workshops enabled me to find my best way to read it So um, I was wondering, which short story writers and stories have influenced you and your writing? Um, wow, so many, so many, and so many different styles. But I would say probably Mary Gateskill is an absolute favourite of mine. Um, and I think her short story, A Dream of Men, is one of my favourite short stories ever. Um, she's just fearless. Um, and there were moments when I was writing the front line where you you shouldn't, but you do. You think, oh, should I put that in? Is that a bit gross? My mind goes to those places. Um, 
And I find reading, reading Mary Gates Girl sort of makes me feel more braver because um, I adore the effect of her writer. I think she's absolutely fearless. Um, the way she writes about the world and um, identity um, and the, the, the detail she chooses to describe and the urgency. Um, and she doesn't, she's not trying to control your thinking. I always feel with her she's not trying to control what, what you should be thinking about the story. Yeah, I think A Dream of Men would be one. And um, who doesn't love George Saunders? Crowd pleaser. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's... I mean, yeah, every story he writes, I think, is just... so much going on. There's so... that The action is incredible. You know, he can't write a flat story. You know, there's so much going on. There's so much movement. Um, when I was writing The Front Line... I was really in love with the story The End of Furpo in the World. Um, which have you read? It's yeah, brilliant. I, it's a fabulous story. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, actually, and what really strikes me about The End of Furpo is that, much like the front line, it's all happening so fast, it's relentless, there's no downtime, it's going, it's going, it's going, and that's what what's so amazing about the front line is it's got such fantastic momentum. Like, once you're in it, you're in it, and there's no moment to look away or get distracted, so... Um, I can certainly see the influence of George Saunders in yeah, the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I hadn't thought about my sto- stories in terms of downtime, actually, and that's a really good observation um, when I think about the story now. Because when you're writing, you're not aware of that. <laughs> um, and this is a great thing about, you know, actually other people reading your work, um, is you find actually more about what you are doing and now I'm going to know I'm going to think about downtime on the next story I might not include it but I haven't you know I wasn't that's a really interesting um, way to read it um, but yeah I mean George Saunders is just incredible um, I haven't really met a writer that doesn't like his stories um, I think I'm sure they're out there <laughs> email in to MRI <laughs> thank you so much for coming to talk to us today it's been a real pleasure I hope you've enjoyed yourself. I have. Yeah, no, it's, it's been lovely. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you again, Lou. To buy a copy of the Mir 15 anthology, go to mereonline.org forward slash anthology. The Mechanics Institute Review Anthology was made possible with funding from the Arts Council. If you want to find out more, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at MirOnlineBBK. And submissions are now open for Mir 16, so get submitting. And thank you all for listening.